morning, church. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are continuing in our 47-week introduction of fellowship (laughs) with the topic of evangelism. Mitch asked me a couple of months ago if I would preach for a couple of weeks on evangelism and fellowship. And I said, sure. And then I went home and thought, what in the world am I going to talk about? Because if you're like me, I had always thought of evangelism as something that individuals did who had the gift of evangelism, who were just really good at talking to people about the gospel. And that was for just some specific people. Or maybe the image you have is the the guy standing on the side of the street yelling through a megaphone, uh, repent or burn in hell. Um, And maybe that's your idea of evangelism. So I had not really thought of evangelism in the context of fellowship. And so the question we have to answer today is, is evangelism a special gift for a few people? Or is it a ministry that the entire church should be a part of? And that's the question. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the The trouble with trying to preach on a topic this big is it is so big and it is so broad uh, that uh, normally I like to preach from one specific text, but today's going to be a little more topical. We're going to look at some different passages, a survey of does the Bible teach evangelism in the context of a community or is it specifically for highly trained, gifted individuals? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is going to be the text that we're going to start from, 1 Corinthians 3. And if you remember, in 1 Corinthians, earlier on in this book, there's a division in the church. Because some people say, well, I follow Peter, and I follow Apollos, and well, I follow uh, Jesus. You have the super spiritual tie, I follow Jesus, and uh, I don't follow anybody. I, you know, So there's this division of people following certain super apostles. And so Paul continues that theme in 1 Corinthians 3 to make a point about evangelism in the context of community. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believed as the lord assigned to each i planted apollos watered but god gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters are anything, but only God who gives the growth. And here's the verse that I think makes the point. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. 
You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning in the name of your Son and ask that you would fill me with your Spirit as we talk about a topic that many people feel uncomfortable talking about, the topic of evangelism. Father, I am humbled to speak on something that I struggle with so much. And Father, the truth is, I believe maybe everyone who is a Christian wants to do better in this area of their Christian life. So, Father, would you speak to us and show us through your word what it means to do community evangelism? How we proclaim the gospel, not merely as individuals, but as a corporate community of faith. And so I pray that you would give us boldness as we preach the gospel together. As one body with one message. So speak through me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about evangelism, evangelism is from the Greek word euangelion. It means gospel. It's the word we get for good news. And so evangelism is about the good news. And I think the tendency might be on this day to talk about evangelism is just to give you ten ways for you to share your faith. To jump into the practical ways of uh, effective methods of evangelism. But I think if we do that, we, we miss a very important part of evangelism. Instead of talking about how today, I want to talk about why. Because if, the, if your motives aren't right for evangelism, then you're going to be discouraged when your methods don't work. And so we need to know why. The how of evangelism must be grounded in the why. And so what today I want to do is give us a picture in Scripture of what evangelism looks like in the context of a community of faith. Not just as individuals, but as a community of faith. And so next week we'll look at some more practical ways of how we can be effective witnesses for the gospel and so before we get into the text, before we look at the evidence of community evangelism, it would be helpful for us to define what evangelism is. I want us to be on the same, same page. And I think a helpful way to do that is to give us some things that evangelism is not. What is evangelism not? I have five of them and there's a lot more I could have said, but here's five big ones. Evangelism is not... Inviting your friend to church to hear your pastor preach a sermon. And by the way, everything I'm about to say are good things. In fact, I invited a lot of people to church this Sunday. I didn't tell many of them who was preaching, but I invited them to church this Sunday. It's a good thing to invite people to church. We should be a group of people willing to invite others. But we don't need to misunderstand that that's not a substitute for evangelism. That's a good thing, inviting people to church, but that's not evangelism. 
And I think there's a shift in our thinking now. For the last 50 years, evangelism, and this is how I grew up understanding it, evangelism was you invite your friend to church to let the professional pastor preach to him and hope that in that message on Sunday morning that your friend might make some decision to follow Jesus. And so we reduced evangelism to a Sunday morning event rather than a lifestyle in which throughout the week we're proclaiming the good news. It's okay to invite friends to church, but that's not evangelism. Second, evangelism is not the same thing as sharing your personal testimony. Now, it's good to share your testimony. It's good to tell people what the Lord has done for you. But I've been to several churches and seen baptismal testimonies where people would get up and share their testimony and never in the course of their story ever explain how you come to Jesus by faith and repentance. There's never any gospel in their testimony. So when we share our testimony, we should be really clear about how a person comes to to Christ and what that means. But let's not confuse sharing your testimony about what God did for you with evangelism and what Jesus has done. Third, evangelism is not social action or social justice or public involvement. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved in your community. We should continue to fight for slavery and for hunger uh, and the poor, all over the world and in our community. We should be taking care of those people, but let's not confuse social justice with the gospel. Social justice can help with the proclamation of the gospel. It can come alongside of the gospel and help our message to be clear, but giving food to the poor and giving uh, giving money to the poor and food to the hungry is not the gospel. Because atheists and agnostics are involved in social justice. But they're not sharing the gospel. Fourth, evangelism is not apologetics. Now, I say that knowing that in two weeks, uh, Brad Poston is going to be speaking to you about apologetics. We're going to have an apologetics class in which you are going to learn how to defend your faith. And apologetics is really important in the ministry of the church. But there's a big difference between apologetics and evangelism. Big difference is apologetics is defending the faith. And that's very different from declaring the good news of what Jesus has done. We need apologetics. And we need to defend the faith against those who would ask for a reason for the hope that is in us. But that's not the same thing as evangelism. Lastly, and this is the one that gets on my nerves. Evangelism is not preaching the gospel by your actions and using words if necessary. That quote is credited to St. Francis of Assisi, and I call that a sissy way of doing evangelism. To say that we, the only time you preach the gospel, you do it with your life, preach it with your actions, and if necessary, use words. That is a coward's excuse for being too afraid to proclaim the good news. Let me say it another way. Preach the gospel with words and use actions if necessary. Let's let's get it back. Why do we say that? Because Paul is clear in Romans 10 that faith comes by seeing people do nice things. No, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And you can't hear unless people are preaching with their mouths. 
People need to hear the good news. So that's what evangelism is not. So what is evangelism? Let's not confuse evangelism with these good and necessary things. And we also must not, we must be careful not to confuse the results of evangelism with the act of evangelism. Just because people come to faith in Christ doesn't mean that it's evangelism. To evangelize does not mean to win converts. To evangelize means to simply announce the good news irrespective of the results. And so here's my definition of evangelism. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and that as the reigning Lord, he now offers the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. That's the gospel. That's, oh, that's evangelism. The message that Jesus died for sinners, rose from the dead, and offers eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the gift of His Spirit, if you will repent of your sin and believe in Christ. That's evangelism. Now the question is, how does the Bible teach us that evangelism is done communally and not just individually? I have five examples of that. And the first one is this. Evangelism. First statement about evangelism in community. Evangelism is a task to be accomplished not by lone Christians, but the entire community of faith. How do we know that? When you read the Bible, all throughout Scripture, God is always using a corporate people to display His character. Constantly, all throughout Scripture. And it begins with His own nature. God accomplishes his own mission of redemption within the fellowship of his triune nature. We believe that God is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons, each sharing the nature of God. Equally God, co-equal and co-eternal. There's never been a time in which Jesus did not exist. Never been a time in which the Spirit did not exist. They have always existed with the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father. The Spirit is equal to the, to the Son. And yet they are distinct persons and they are one God. And yet in the mysterious nature of the Trinity, we see the act of redemption. God the Father elects His children from eternity past, choosing those whom He will show grace to. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us Uh, and adopted us before the foundation of the world. This was an act of God as the Father. He elects those whom He will show mercy to and not judge. He's going to send Christ the Son. The Son comes to pay for and redeem those whom the Father has chosen as His people. And the Spirit later comes and even today is effecting that salvation in the lives of those whom the Son came to die for and whom the Father has chosen by His grace and so the trinity is not working against each other the father is not saying well i'm going to try to get everybody if they want to and jesus you go down there and and try to die for some people and see if they'll accept you and spirit you do your best and we'll see what we end up with no the, the trinity is very intentional and purposeful in the work of redemption throughout history And we see Father, Son, and Spirit working within the community of the triune God to redeem people to Himself for His 
glory. So we see it in the Trinity to begin with. Not only that, in the book of Genesis, from the very beginning, God does not create Adam alone. He creates Adam and Eve. He creates the family. A a unit of a man and a woman to come together to become one flesh, one community, one family. And through their marriage, they display the nature of God in the gospel as Christ loves the church. The husband lays down his life for his wife. And as the church submits to the authority of Christ, the wife lovingly submits to her husband's godly leadership. You see the family as the, as the picture, the, the first picture of community evangelism as the marriage displays the nature of God in redemption. Not only that, there is a fly flying all over my face. Okay. There's another example. God does not simply save and call Abraham alone. He calls Abraham for the purpose of making a great nation. And it is in that nation that God will display his character. All throughout scripture we're seeing God creating a corporate people to display his glory and to display his character. And that's why in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6 they say that God tells the nation of Israel, You will be to me a kingdom of priests. Not just the Levites, but all of you will be a kingdom of priests to me. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. And so God displays his character through Israel, through his covenants, through his law. And so the nation of Israel is placed within the context of they are surrounded by wicked pagan nations. And they are to display the character of God. In the same vein, we see the church as doing the same thing that Israel does in the Old Testament. The church, purchased with Christ's blood, reveals the nature of God today as a corporate community of faith. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It is the church, the community, the entire community of faith that displays the nature of God in evangelism. And so what you have in the church is you have a spirit-filled, spirit-created society in the midst of a fallen, cursed world to bear witness to the gospel. And this is what Paul tells uh, the Philippian church in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15. He tells that church, remember, Israel was placed in the context of the Canaanites and they grumbled. And they did not provide an effective witness to those people. They did not remove those people. They, they fell into idolatry. And so Paul tells the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing, referencing back to Israel, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's all of us. We shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked, perverted generation. And we as the church are here to shine the light of the gospel. This is something that all of us take place. This is something that all of us uh, are, are, are a part of. 
And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, we are salt to a flavorless, tasteless, bland world. You are light to a dark world. A dark, dead, lost world. So that's the first thing. Evangelism is not simply to be done by lone Christians. But evangelism is to be done by the entire community of faith. The second thing that we see about evangelism in the community. Evangelism is not a special calling for some, but a divine command for all. This is not an option. Jesus in the Great Commission is not giving a great option It's the great commission. It's the great command. And he tells his disciples, make disciples. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go in all nations, making disciples, teaching them things that I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what God intended for Israel as well. When he told them in Exodus 19 that you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Listen to Exodus 19. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The question that we need to ask is, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Because obviously we are not offering sacrifices anymore, right? We don't go into the temple. We're not separated by a veil. What does it mean today in the church that we are a kingdom of priests? What was expected of of the nation of Israel? Obviously, you have the Levitical priests. And they were were called to be in the priesthood. But God is not just speaking to the Levites. He's speaking to the entire nation of Israel and says, you're all priests. So what does that mean? I think there is a verse in Deuteronomy that gives us some evidence of this. I didn't put it on the screen, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, remember Moses is giving his final sermons before he dies. And Joshua takes his place. It's a dress rehearsal for the people to go into the promised land. And Moses pronounces a blessing and a charge to each of the twelve tribes. And he gets to the tribe of Levi, or the Levites, the priesthood. And there's this verse in Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. And here's what Moses charges with the Levites. But I think it applies to all who are priests. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10 says to the people of the Levites, They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. They shall put incense before you, and they shall put whole burnt offerings on your altar. There are three things in that verse that priests are intended to do, and that applies to us today. The first thing that the Levites were told is that they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your laws. As a kingdom of priests, all of us are called to teach the word. 
And you may not be a teacher in the church, but we are called to be able to explain the scriptures. The Levites were in, supposed to know the word of God, to explain it to other people. And as a, as a priest filled with the spirit in Christ's church today, all of us are to be able to teach scripture, to look at scripture and explain it to someone who might have questions. And you may not have a seminary degree and you may not know all the answers and you may not know Greek and Hebrew. That's okay. You can still teach the Bible. You can still teach the gospel. So we teach the word. The second thing that Levites do, it says, they shall put incense before you. This incense was an image of prayer. And so as a kingdom of priests, we intercede for others in prayer. One of the great works of evangelism is to pray for other people. To intercede for them. To go before the Father, to go before the throne of grace and plead for them that God would be merciful to those who do not know Christ. As a priest, you have that privilege. It says they offer incense up. Pray. Do you pray for lost people? Do you have a list of names of people that you want to see come to Christ? I think there needs to be urgency in the church before God begins to add to the church. He uses means. And one of the great means that God uses to bring people to Christ is when His people pray. God takes great pleasure and joy in answering the prayers of His people so that He may be glorified in the answering of His prayers. So as a kingdom of priests, we teach the Word. We intercede for others in prayer. And the third thing that the priests did that the Levites did, it says they shall offer whole burnt offerings on your altar. Now, I don't want to do that. But what was the purpose of the priest? The purpose of the priest was to show the people how they could get to God through an atoning sacrifice. And that is exactly what you are called to do as a kingdom of priests. To show people how to get to God through an atoning sacrifice. Not by the bodies of burnt animals. But through the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. We, we point people to the cross. And we show them. This is the way to God. Through the atoning sacrifice that God gave us. We point people to the cross. We intercede for them in prayer. And we teach them the word. And that is exactly what Peter means in 1 Peter 2.9. When he tells the church that you are a holy nation. A royal priesthood. A people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and has called you and brought you into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. You teach the word. You intercede and pray for those who don't know Christ. And you show them how to get to God through the cross. The priesthood is a twofold ministry. As priests, we bring the people to God. We also bring God to the people. We, in a, sense, in a sense, we are showing people how to get to God through Christ. And in another sense, we bring God to them because we are pursuing them. We are the mouthpiece of Christ. We speak on behalf of Christ. We are His ambassadors. We come in the name of Jesus. We speak for Him. And to be a priest, you represent God before the people. And this is something that is not an option for some. It is a command for all. The third thing about evangelism that we see in Scripture is that evangelism cannot be separated from discipleship and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. 
You cannot separate evangelism and discipleship and treat them as two completely separate things. Without evangelism, there's no discipleship. And without discipleship, there's no evangelism. Here's how this works. You can't make a disciple if you don't first bring them to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. If we don't show them the way to God. And so you don't make disciples of lost people. That's how that works. And if you're doing discipleship, you are also doing evangelism. You are show, you're proclaiming the gospel and training people and bringing them to faith. And by, and by your ministry and your evangelism, as they come to faith in Christ, you train them to go and tell others. We don't evangelize and then make disciples. Evangelism is simply a step in discipleship. You don't just say, well, I evangelize and so, okay, they're converted now, so let me move on to go talk to somebody else. Evangelism without discipleship is incomplete. And it's not evangelism. True evangelism is to not only share the gospel with a lost person so that they come to faith in Christ, but it is to take that person by the hand and to walk them through doctrine and theology and to teach them the word and to show them how to live and to show them how to, how to teach the gospel until they're able to do it on their own. And I think what we've done is we've separated the ministry of evangelism and discipleship and we've said, oh, you're good at evangelism and I'm good at discipleship. And in a sense, I understand what that means. There are some people that are just really good at preaching the gospel and when they preach, for some reason, people believe it. And there's other people who are much more gifted at, at being able to, to walk with somebody and show them how to live. But we must do both. question that my seminary professor used to always ask me Dr. Lyle Dorset you may have read some of his books on C.S. Lewis he used to say pilgrim I like your beard bro and I was like what are you talking about oh yeah pilgrim how are your men how are your men um, what men? What are you talking about? Your men. Those young men that you're taking under your wing and teaching them how to follow Jesus and love Jesus better. How are your men? And I got so convicted because I realized I can't answer the question, how are my men, until I first answer, who are my men? And so I had to take... 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, very seriously. What you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Let me ask the men of this church, how are your men? Men, we, we ought to set the example of discipleship. One thing that I appreciate about Mitch is that he, we're meeting with a group of men on Wednesday. We meet with another group on Tuesday mornings way too early, but it's worth it every time we go. Those are his men. It's a fellowship of brothers. Let me ask you, men, how are your men? Do you have any men? Are you investing in other people? Or is church just the time when you get fed and are you just a consumer? How are your men? 
Those men that you're training in godliness, training in holiness, training in the word. Ladies, how are your women? Are you teaching young ladies how to be godly? What it means to have true beauty. What true modesty is about. What it means to be a follower of Christ. Are you teaching them how to be good wives? How are your women? It's a good question. We cannot just be satisfied when a person makes a profession of faith. We have to love that person enough to walk alongside with them until they're able to stand on their own two feet and make disciples of others. Discipleship is not complete until you have made a disciple maker. Discipleship is not just making converts. It's making disciple makers. It's not just making people who know a lot about the Bible. It's making people who are able to teach other people how to make other people who can teach other people. That makes sense? It's got to reproduce itself. And if it doesn't, that's the way I memorize 2 Timothy 2 too, Because it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It's the idea of two men going and teaching two other men who can go teach two other men. It's, it starts small. It's simple. What you have heard from me in the presence of faithful witnesses, go and entrust the faithful men so that they will be able to teach others also. This is a divine mandate, not just for the specially called, ministerially trained. It is for every spirit-filled believer in the body of Christ. How are your men? The fourth thing about evangelism that the Bible teaches in community. Evangelism seeks to connect believers not only with Christ, but with his church. Now this may seem like a strange thing, but evangelism is not just the invitation for someone to follow Christ and to be a follower of Jesus, but it is an invitation into a community of faith, into his body as well. And I'm not saying that we're not telling people to follow Jesus. Yes, evangelism is first and foremost the gospel that Jesus has died for sinners, was raised on the third day and calls people to repent and believe in him and to follow him. But by following Jesus, you do not follow him alone. I think the sacraments of the church really help communicate this. By sacraments, I mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think those were intentional to show us that the gospel demands that we are involved in a community of faith. First, baptism. We're baptized into the body of Christ. We're not just baptized in Christ. We're not just baptized in his death and raised in his resurrection. We're not just identified with Jesus and what he did for us. But when we are raised and and baptized and raised, we are raised into a body. We're baptized into a community of faith. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 says, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one spirit. We're baptized into one body. When you're baptized and you confess your faith to the world, you're confessing your faith and you are standing up with another group of believers saying, I stand together with these people. You become a member of the covenant community of faith. What about the Lord's Supper? We call it communion. Which comes from the same root word where we get community, right? 
You don't take communion by yourself. The very word means and emphasizes that you do it with a body, that we are in communion, not just with Christ, but you're in fellowship with believers. First Corinthians, first Corinthians 11, verse 33 says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. One of the problems in the Corinthian church is that they would they would have the Lord's Supper before everybody would get there and they would get drunk with it and they wouldn't allow the poor to come that the rich people would do it. They had a lot of problems in that church. And all that aside, Paul has to say, look, when you come together to eat, it's. It's there we come together, we take communion as a body. And so as we eat the bread and we drink from the cup. And we have people who are baptized. We are, we are proclaiming to the world that we are not Lone Ranger Christians, but we are members of a covenant community. And so what does that have to do with evangelism? Biblical evangelism should never produce Lone Ranger Christians separated from Christian fellowship. But I've met a lot of people. I went to school with a lot of people in college who said, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't need the church. I get my church at home. And let me just make a point here. Watching TBN is not a substitute for church membership. Just because you watch preaching on television on Sunday doesn't, doesn't substitute for your need to be in the fellowship of believers. And there's another problem with that. You cannot claim to love Jesus and hate his bride. If you come up to me and you say, "Hey, Josh, man, you're a cool guy, and uh, I, I, you're just you're my bud, man. You're my friend. We're tight, and uh, we're we're good friends. And I just really enjoy hanging out with you. Really appreciate your friendship. But your wife, Jenny, I cannot stand her. I just she gets on my nerves, and I just don't want to be around her. And I, I just, you're cool, man. It, it's cool with you. There's nothing nothing wrong with us. But your wife, though, I just I can't I can't handle her. I can't be around her. So if we can just do things together, but but just don't invite her to come along with uh, with our guy time because I, I just don't I, I'm not cool with that. I, she, I just can't be around her. If you say that to me, you've got a problem not just with her. You've got a problem with me, too. And things are not okay. Biblical evangelism invites people not just to follow Christ, but to become members of a covenant community. And it's in that covenant community that we find strength to live for Christ and to proclaim Jesus to the world. I get great encouragement from coming within a, a fellowship of other believers every Sunday to be reminded that I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not the only one struggling every single week, wanting to share the gospel, wanting to talk to people. And yet so many times I don't. I fail and I know that I should. And I come here and I realize everybody's struggling with the same thing. Good, we're not alone. So I can do this together. I've got people with me. And I'm encouraged by the brothers that I meet with every week to be reminded that we are not alone in this ministry. And the last thing that I want to say, and I want to spend the most time here. The fifth thing about evangelism is that evangelism is most effective when the entire congregation is unified in its message and its mission. The gospel is most powerfully proclaimed 
when the, the entire community of faith is active and unified in ministry. I'll give you several examples of this. First, at the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached, and 3,000 people were added to that church, the Bible does not say that Peter stood alone. Acts chapter 2 says that Peter stood with the 11. The 11 who? The apostles. He stood with the 11 and he preached. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day. I want to read what Charles Spurgeon said about this because he can say it a lot better than I can. Charles Spurgeon said about this moment when, when Peter stood up to preach with with these 11 other men standing behind him and standing together with him, Spurgeon says, we must not forget that there had been a long season of earnest, united, believing prayer on the part of the whole church. Peter was not alone. He was the voice of a praying company. And the believers had been with one accord in one place crying for a blessing. And thus, not only was the Spirit resting upon the preacher, but on all who were with him. What a difference this makes to the preacher of the gospel. When all of his comrades are as much anointed of the Spirit as himself, his power is enhanced a hundredfold. We shall seldom see the very greatest wonders wrought when the preacher stands by himself. But when Peter is described as standing up with the eleven then there is a 12-man ministry concentrated in one. And when the inner circle is further sustained by a company of men and women who have entered into the same truth and are of one heart and one soul, then is the power increased beyond measure. If we are looking for the greatest result, it must come from one who is not alone but the mouthpiece of many. Peter stands up and he preaches and he is standing with the eleven and he preaches to a large group of people and thousands come to faith because they see the unified message and ministry of a group of spirit-filled, prayer-filled believers. Another example. Deacons were appointed soon after this to, in service to support the apostles' teaching. You remember this? Some of the widows were not getting proper attention and the apostles don't have enough help. And so they appoint seven spirit-filled godly men to help serve in the church. And the reason they did this is they said, who are we to serve tables? We need to give our time to the ministry of prayer and the word. Now, what I want us to see here is that if you're not a preacher standing up here preaching the message in front of everybody else, that doesn't minimize your ministry in this church. The deacon's work was not less important than the apostles. They were both doing the same work, just with different roles. In the same way that a husband and wife are are, are in in one marriage, and yet the wife... Just as the Holy Spirit comes along as a helper, it's not that the man's better than the woman, it's just that they have different roles and they come together to do the same mission. The deacons are serving tables and serving the widows to free up the apostles so that they can preach and teach so that the church can be most effective in their gospel witness. And what does that look like here on Sunday morning? 
just because you're at the soundboard or just because you're filling up communion cups or just because you set up chairs or just because you're a greeter or just because you clean the bathroom or just because you go get coffee or just because you hang around and pray with people doesn't mean that your job is less important than what I'm doing right now preaching the gospel. Because I can't preach and Mitch can't preach and anybody standing up here. We can't do this effectively if the other jobs are not being done. And so we need to see that we are not doing separate things. We're doing one thing with different roles. And so the deacons are no less important than elders and pastors. And that the communion cup fillers are no, no better or no worse than the sound people or the person preaching. And so what that should do for you is that should give you great joy in doing whatever task God has given you to do. And to not think that you are inferior of anyone else because you think you have a lesser task. There is no lesser task in the kingdom. We are working together in one mission. Third example of how the church is most effective working together. The church grew in number not only by the apostles' preaching, but through the church's fellowship. You go to Acts chapter 2, and we've heard this several weeks of Acts chapter 2 and, and how the, the church was sharing everything they had. Listen to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44. I know you're familiar with this passage, but I want to show how the fellowship of the church resulted in people coming to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what was the result of this fellowship, this breaking of bread, sharing of possessions? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It wasn't just from the sermons at Pentecost. It was from the sharing of life in their homes that people were coming to faith. Which is a great way for us as a church to reach our community. Not just by inviting them to, to a church service. It's probably a lot easier for them to invite them to your homes, to your connect groups. That's the way that we can reach a lot of people who are going to feel uncomfortable coming into a place where they don't know many people and everything we do in this church is weird. I don't know if you know that or not, but this is strange stuff we do. We eat bread and drink juice because of some guy who died a long time ago. This is in the mind of an unbeliever, of course. We, we stand and sing songs about blood. Sounds like we're cannibals, right? And some guy gets up and talks really loud and, and preaches from some book that's over two or three, four thousand years old. And somehow this book has application for your life today. The things that we do in the church may be different, but inviting someone into your home and sharing a meal with them and showing them what true, authentic Christian fellowship looks like, that is a great means by which the Spirit uses to open people's hearts to the gospel. So use it. Which means if you're not connected in a, in a connect group, you need to be. That's a great way for you to evangelize. 
to build relationships with people so that you can share the gospel with them and invite them into your life. Use your kitchen table as a missionary. Fourth example. I have five of them. The fourth one. We're almost done. Evangelistic fruit most often is the result of several faithful witnesses, not just one. Remember the, te- the, the, the text we read at the very beginning of this, of this message. Paul preached and planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos later came and watered and fertilized the seed, and God gave the increase. And he says we are fellow workers in this task. You know what that means? Your witness to someone may not result in them coming to faith, but your witness may be just one of many in a long line of faithful Christians in that person's life sharing the gospel with them. You never know. You never know who you are, who you're talking to, and what impact it may have. The way that may work is you may have been inviting somebody to this church forever, sharing the gospel, and they just they don't get it. So you invite them into your home or your, your connect group leader's home, and, and they hear from that person, and they tell some story that just really affects this person, and, and they go home and they think about it. And then they do turn on TBN, actually, and they, they see something that just speaks to them. They say, you know what? I heard that today from my friend. And, and then they come to church, and then they, they hear Mitch get up and preach, and they say, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. And everybody says, well, Mitch, you preached a great sermon. And wow, Mitch, that was great. If you hadn't have done that, this person may have never come to faith. And we minimize the ministry of all the other things that happen. And what Paul is saying is that the person who preaches the sermon is no better than the person who is a faithful witness in a connect group because we are fellow workers and we are only doing what we can do. You can plant a seed in a garden and water it and fertilize it and give it sunshine all day long, but you can't make it grow. All you can do is plant the seed and fertilize and let God give the increase. And so what Paul here is basically doing is showing the sovereignty of God and salvation, using people to preach the gospel and then bringing those people to faith through the witness of faithful believers. So take heart. If you're preaching, you're sharing with somebody and they don't believe, it's okay. It's okay. I had a guy, I I like to play disc golf, love disc golf. I'm at Barry all the time. And disc golf has provided a way for me to get to share the gospel with some people that I normally wouldn't see. People who don't go to church. And uh, there was a guy last year who, man, he, he had one of the foulest mouths I've ever heard. And just very vulgar. And his name was Adam. And we, we played disc golf a lot. And, and he just every time he just had this foul mouth. And uh, me and another guy, another Christian guy I've been discipling, we were, we were playing with him. And just over the course of about three to four months... We didn't laugh at his jokes. We just we shared with him, told him what we were doing, ministry and everything. And uh, it was so funny because I, there was another guy that we played with whose whose house had burned, and his daughters he had three daughters. They had they all shared the same room, and their bedroom burned up, lost everything. So the Bible study group that I had, all these girls just gave all this clothing to this guy. So the last day that we had to be with with Adam and this other guy, we gave these clothes to his friend. And said, listen, we wanted to do this uh, in Jesus' name. We love you and want to let your girls have some clothes to wear. And Adam's standing there like, I don't know why you're doing that, but that's awesome. And the next day we played disc golf. We had one more day to play. And he hit a tree. And normally he would have thrown out like three or four words. He goes, crack. Well, darn. And we're looking at him like, 
What's going on? And, and you know what? I don't have some great story about how this guy became a believer and a missionary to China. And, and you know, I don't have that story. The truth is he never made a profession of faith. I just found out the guy moved back to Missouri. He flew in every week to come to work at the hospital and he played disc golf. And so I don't know. I'm praying that some other Christian in his life is going to come alongside and and water. I planted a seed. Some other guy's going to come water. And I pray one day I hear about this guy coming to faith. But I don't I don't get discouraged because I didn't lead him in a sinner's prayer. Right. That's not the goal. The goal is to be faithful to preach the gospel. Last thing. Last example, and this might be my favorite, and it comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. (laughs) I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 11. There had been a persecution of Stephen. Remember, Stephen was stoned for his witness. And because of that persecution, it caused the church of Jerusalem to be scattered. And they all went in different directions. And up until that point, they had gone just preaching the gospel as they went to the Jews. The only people who stayed in Jerusalem were the apostles. They stayed there. And you have the the church gets scattered. And I want you to listen. I love this. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And I love this verse. But there were some of them, some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You know, my favorite part of this verse is it doesn't give their name. It just says some guys, some men, some men of Cyprus, some men of Cyrene, unnamed, unknown, some guys got scattered, had to leave their home. And as they're walking, they're saying, you know what, we're just going to preach the gospel while we go. And they go to Antioch, and Antioch becomes the central missions agency, the primary place where missionaries are being sent out for the gospel in the book of Acts. Antioch becomes that central location because of some guys. And Mitch and I were talking about that the other day, and I said, you know, Mitch, I just gives me, that just encourages me because... There's just some boys, some old boys from Silver Creek who said, let's, let's start a church. Just some college students. Who knows, right? Just some college students decided that they would pray and a mass revival broke out at Shorter and Barry. Just some guys, just some girls. Unnamed, unknown, but spirit-filled. Some guys. There's some principles here for us. First, evangelism is not for famous saints, but for faithful servants. Evangelism is not for the famous. It's not just for Peter, James, and Paul, and John. It's for some guys, some guys in Rome, some college professor, some minister, some some teacher, some plumber, some educator, some banker, some engineer. Just some guy, some lady just decided, I want to preach the gospel and be faithful. 
not, may not get your name on a plaque, may not be named in Scripture, but you're just being faithful. It's not for famous saints, it's for faithful servants. Second, evangelism will not be successful by human persuasion, but by the Spirit's power. It's not up to you to convince people with your persuasive words. Trust the Spirit's power. The Bible says these some guys that the hand of the Lord was upon them and many people were added to the church. It was by the hand of the Lord and not by these men's persuasiveness. And finally, evangelism must not be done by a few ministers, but by every member of the church. I'll tell you this and I'm done. My, my dad, if anybody should be up here talking about evangelism, it's my dad. And for anybody who knows my dad well, my dad is the most bold witness of the gospel that I've ever met in my life. There are... He, come, he used to come home every day and talk, talk to me about how many people he'd gotten to share with. And he works at Georgia Power, worked at Plant Hammond for over 25 years. Now he's a plant manager at Plant Bowen. And uh, my dad would just, would just share the gospel with anybody. Bold. And I, I, I admire that and I wish I had that boldness that he has. One day we were sitting at the table at our house and my dad was discouraged. He was in the dumps. And maybe you've been there before. He said, Josh, you know, sometimes I think when I was a young man your age, when I was in my 20s, I thought that the Lord was calling me to preach. He said, I just thought that, you know, I should have done that. And he said, I disobeyed that. And I said, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. And I feel like as some type of punishment, God has, God has put me at Plant Hammond and just taken that gift away and he just passed it on to you. And, I, you know, I, I witness every day to these guys and I don't see any converts. I don't see anything happening. And I'm just discouraged and I feel like I'm wasting my life. I said, Dad, I'd love to have your boldness. Dad, you got to realize Noah preached for 120 years and nobody believed, right? Jeremiah preached 40 years without a single convert. Like, you're not alone. But I also said, Dad, what you've got to realize, the problem is you've grown up in a church society, in a church uh, culture that says that only the called can do it. Only those specially called Christians can do ministry. Only the special ones, only the ones who go to seminary, only the specially trained. I said, Dad, what you've got to realize is that you are a pastor to those people at Plant Ham and Plant Bowen, people who don't have a pastor. They don't go to church. They don't have a pastor. Most of them are unbelievers. He said, yeah, I only have one believer that I work with. His name's Harry. And I talk to Harry all the time, and, and he's the only guy there. I said, Dad, you're the pastor of, of Georgia Power. And he said, you know what? That, change, that changes everything. I can go be a pastor to the pastorless. And I would tell you the same thing. If you work at Shorter or Barry, you're a pastor to those students. If you work in a job in an office, you're a pastor to those people. And I told my dad that, and he said, man, that just changed my life. I'm a pastor. Every member ministry. I get it now. And it freed him up just to live his life and to do his job and to be a Christian minister where he was. And he went to his, he went to his job, went to, went to Georgia Power the next morning, and he went up to Harry. And he said, Harry, um, I found out last night that I'm the pastor of Georgia Power. And Harry looked at him and said, you are? Can I be your deacon? 
And so take courage. If you're spirit-filled, you are qualified and equipped to do ministry. Evangelism is not for the specially called. It is for everyone who's in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this encouragement from Scripture that when we see ourselves failing in this work of evangelism, feeling inadequate for the task, you remind us that the work of, of salvation is of the Lord And yet you call us to be faithful. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for every Christian in this room that you would help us to fight against the mentality that only the specially trained ministers can do this work. I pray that you would empower every man, every woman, every student, every teacher, Every plumber, every educator, every engineer, every math teacher, empower them today to go and do the work of an evangelist, to share the gospel and proclaim the good news that Jesus died for sinners, rose from the dead, and commands everyone to repent and believe. Would you give us a heart and a compassion for the lost? And would you help us to take advantage of our community and not to try to do this alone, but to do it with the body of Christ behind us. Fill us with your spirit and empower us. Use us, some guys, some girls, use us, some men, some women, to be faithful to the gospel task. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?